Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. How many of you here liked tests and quizzes in high school, college, in your career? That's right. Okay, there's a few. Oh, come on. You can't. You really like it. There's always one, right? Like, who's like, I just love it. No, 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 no. Don't be starting to raise your hands like, no, Okay. I hated it. In fact, it gave me PTSD, you know, like I always like, anytime one came up, I'd be like, oh. So I thought, what better way to start off today than by giving us a test or a quiz, right? And not even, but better than that, it's an agricultural quiz. And some of you are like, that's not any better, right? Because if you're like me, you grew up in the city. And so you're like, I don't know anything about it, but it's going to be really easy. In fact, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to show you a picture of a tree and you just tell me what kind of tree it is. All right. So you ready? It doesn't matter if you're ready. We're still going to do it. Okay. Cause there's a point to all of this. What kind of tree is that? It's an apple tree. Yeah, don't try. Okay, this is not a Christmas tree. Uh, <laughs> no, it's an apple tree. How can you tell it's an apple tree? Because the apple's on it, right? Okay, see, not trick questions, okay? What kind of tree? Let's look at this other one. What kind of tree is this? It's an orange tree, right? There you go. You're rolling with this. My son, Asher, my middle son and I, we love oranges. And so uh, this orange tree means a lot to us because we try to see who can eat the most oranges. Okay, here's another tree. What kind of tree is this right here? Lemon tree. See, there's no, you're flying through this. Look at you. You know what kind of trees they are. All right. Last tree. Ready? What kind of tree is this? You don't know what kind of tree it is, right? I tricked you. That's the thing. I always had a trick question in all these tests and quizzes. You don't know what kind of tree it is. It's actually an apple tree. But uh, the, the reality is, is that you knew what kind of trees those were by the fruit on the outside. You knew what kind of tree it was on the inside by the fruit on the outside. And uh, the last one you didn't know because there is no fruit on it. And the reason why I share all this with you is because the reality is this is what James is going to be making a point today to tell us is that what is inside of us will spill out of us. We're going to discover that if our faith is alive and is genuine, it will be clearly evident by the fruit that we bear or the works in our lives. Just like those trees, we knew immediately what they were. Other people should look at our lives and go, oh, I know exactly who that is. That person's a follower of Jesus. That person loves Jesus, is following Jesus. Because there's evidence on the outside of the faith that we profess on the inside. Again, one thing we've been saying over the last several weeks is that a genuine faith would drive genuine actions. And so today, James is going to be talking to us, teaching us about this relationship between faith and works. In fact, the title of today's message is Having a Faith That Works. Having a Faith That Works. So if you have a Bible, would you join with me in James chapter 2? We're going to be looking at a big section of Scripture today. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 26 today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll have the, you have a smartphone, and I would encourage you, go to the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, if you just go to the More tab, then click Events, you'll see Awaken Church. It'll be about the third one down, and you can follow along with the verses. You can take notes there, because maybe you're into saving trees. And uh, so you're like, I'm not going to use any paper, and so you, you like to take notes digitally. I would encourage you to do that as well. But pick up in verse 14. James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, 
but does not have works. Can that faith save him? Now pause right there for just a second because what I want to point out is this rhetorical question that James asks here in verse 14 uh, is really the key verse of this entire book. In fact, if you have a physical Bible, I would encourage you to underline it, highlight it, circle it, because the reality is every verse before this verse points to it, and every verse after this points back to this verse. This is kind of the key theme of James here. But moving on, in verse 15, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, it's a little bit of controversy. We'll talk about it here in a minute, but this is what he says. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 25, and in the same way, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. If you didn't pick up on it, this section of verses is dominated between the relationship of faith and works. In total, 22 times faith and works are used in this section of verses. Now, This passage, like I said, has a lot of controversy with it. There's a lot of people who've had to try to have it removed from the Bible. In fact, Martin Luther pretty famously uh, said that the epistle of James was an epistle of straw. Now, that doesn't really sound like fighting words today, but back then, that was fighting words. That wasn't a good thing. That wasn't nice things that he was saying about the book of James. But the reality is we can read this passage, we can hear what is being said, and we go, really, James? Like, is James really saying that we are justified or we are saved by our works? And in our minds, we immediately think of other parts of the Bible, like what Paul says, that we are saved by faith and faith alone. But I believe James and Paul would actually agree with one another. They're not contradicting one another at all. In fact, a lot of atheists and agnostics would love to come to this section of verses and say, hey, guess what? Your Bible is wrong. That's not it. It's contradicting. See it? Man wrote it, not God, because it's contradicting itself. But that's not the case. That's not what's happening here at all. Both James and Paul would say, you need faith and you need works. They go together, kind of like PB&J, right? They just go together. So how do we make sense of all of this? Well, there's a very logical explanation to this. And what I want to do is explain what James is trying to say, help us understand the bigger context of what James is saying. And then we're going to unpack Uh, what James is saying, giving us three kinds of faith. See, in verse 24, when James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, the problem is we're reminded of what Paul said in Romans 3.28. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. 
So we think of that and we go, well, what's going on here? Are these two guys contradicting one another? Well, let's break it down just a little bit. When James says, you see a person is justified by what they do, you need to ask yourself this question, justified by whom? And justified by man, that our works will show man that we have a legitimate faith. And really, isn't that the context of what we've been talking about over the last several weeks? That if we say one thing, our works, we will do it. We're not just going to be hearers of the word, we're going to do it. There's a difference. There's a transformation that has happened in our lives. Now, when, when Paul says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works, you need to again ask the question, justified by whom? Justified by God. We are declared righteous by God. See, these two men are talking to two different, uh, talking about two different things. Paul is saying, hey, he's talking about being justified, saved, declared righteous before God because of what you believe. And James is saying, when you have that faith, it'll be justified before people in the way it works itself out. You can think about it like this. Imagine today I said, hey, let's go down to Nashville and let's uh, either today or later this week, let's go down and let's go watch a football game. You might be like, Nate, you've been hitting the books a little too hard. Like, don't you know the draft is just happening this week? Like, there's no football, at least for another couple of months. And I'd be like, no, let's, let's go see a football game. You know, let's wear uh, blue and yellow. Like, let's go down there. And you're like, oh, Nate, that's soccer. You know, like that's, that's what it is. Here's the idea, though. Football is the same word, but has different meanings. It all depends on the context. It depends on who you're talking to. And so Paul and James here are talking to two different audiences, Paul is writing to the Judaizers, people who believe that you need to do the works of the law in order to be saved. And James is writing to people who've bought into an antinomian faith, which means that once you're saved, it doesn't matter what you do. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. It does matter what you do. Now, when you read these two guys, don't think of them in a face-off ready to battle one another because they didn't like each other. They hated one another. They just were ready to fight one another. That's not the case at all. In fact, they actually liked each other. They saw eye to eye with one another. So it's not that they're in a face-off ready to battle one another. It's that they're actually standing back to back. When you read these two guys, you need to think of them back to back, fighting the gospel against two different audiences. So now that we have that context, now that there's that understanding, what I want to do is unpack for us the three kinds of faith that James talks about in these section of verses. And the first one he talks about is a workless faith is a worthless faith. A workless faith is a worthless faith. James gives us an illustration of what this worthless faith, or what he'll say is a dead faith, is like. In verse 15, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So in verse 14, James gives, like I said, a rhetorical question, and then he proceeds to answer that rhetorical question with this illustration. Basically, he's like, okay, guys, let me break this down real easy for you right now. Let me make this real practical for you. Imagine a brother and sister comes in, and, and they're needing clothing, they're needing some food, and, and you say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and you don't give them what they need. He's like, what good is that? What good is it to say, hey, I believe, but good luck with that? See, go in peace is a Jewish form of dismissal. It's like saying, have a nice day. Good luck. See you later. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. That's what 
he's getting at there. When it says be warmed and filled, it means fix your own problems. It means, hey, find somebody else to do that for you. The point here is that the evidence that Jesus has come to live inside of me is that he begins to give me a love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a genuine love. If you're not moved to respond to them in love, James says, hey, guess what? Your faith is dead. It's worthless. We don't just wish poor people well and then go back to our comfortable lives. We help, we provide, we feed, we serve, we clothe. We do all of that with humble hearts because we know that's exactly what God has done for us. We don't just simply wish people well. Our beliefs are lived out in our actions. See, for Jewish people, providing and caring for the poor was fundamental to living out the command, love God and love others. James is reminding us that true faith acts on behalf of the poor, the marginalized, the overlooked. In fact, the word dead in the Greek means necron, which is where we get our word corpse from. See, in the first century, they didn't have version Bible. They didn't have what we have today, the, the scriptures written down for us. They would actually be hearing these verses read out loud. And so when they heard these verses read out loud, their minds would have immediately went to, oh, he's talking about a dead body. So here's quiz number two. What does a dead body do? Nothing. It does nothing. See, what James is trying to help us understand is that it's all about lip service and no lifestyle. It's about beliefs without behavior. And James gives us this example. And it sounds very much like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus said, I was alone, hungry, uh, naked in prison, and you did not care for me. And the people listening were like, Jesus, when were you alone, naked in prison and hungry, and we didn't care for you? I said, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. See, I wonder uh, this week as I was reading this, I wonder if James was like, man, I remember my big brother Jesus talking about this stuff. And I wonder if he had that story in his mind as he wrote down this letter and as he was writing this particular section down. Faith without works is dead. Now, please hear me when I say this. What James is saying here, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25 is not about you working to get your way into heaven. The way that you get into heaven is not work your way into heaven, but it is the work of Jesus on the cross that gets us to heaven. Our works is not a basis of salvation. They are evidence of salvation. If you've been saved, then you will do good works. Now, as crystal clear as I can be and as I can make this, if you do not have a relationship with the Lord, that is your biggest priority. That is your biggest need. But that doesn't mean we can dismiss James's instruction here. This doesn't even mean that uh, we're relieved from the responsibility of caring for one another. In fact, there was a man who I believe lived this section of verses out. His name was William Wilberforce. And he was a man who was trying to abolish the slave trade in England. Preaching the gospel was his priority. Thousands of orphans came to know the Lord. But then he also built hospitals. For him, he understood that what God had done for him to save him, it seemed ridiculous to him that he would not have compassion and care for those around him. See, it's crazy for us to ascribe some theological truth that God pursued us when we could do nothing to earn it or deserve it, and then we wouldn't in turn live that out to those in need to those in our church, to those in our community, in our schools, our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. I'll say it this way. Our vertical worship, worship with God, 
always affects the horizontal, the way that we relate to one another. In other words, my right standing with God through the blood of Jesus affects the way that I treat people around me. Good works does not save you. Jesus does. But saving faith shows itself by the evidence of the good works that come out of you. You can think of it like this. When there's a fire in the fireplace, there's smoke in the chimney, right? Smoke is the evidence of a fire going on inside the house. It's not the fire itself, but it points to the evidence of the fire. In our hearts, the smoke is the good works of our lives. Uh, there's something that's gone on inside of us. God has changed our minds, changed our hearts, changed our lives. There was an old way of living things, but when God has come into our hearts and our lives, we are radically different. We are new people with new desires. And so we are transformed. When God gets a hold of us, smoke is the evidence of something going on inside of us. James is not saying you better do good works if you want to be saved saying that if you truly believe, if you're truly saved, then you'll want to do something. It'll be shown through your works. Here's the second kind of faith that he's talking about. A genuine faith is not intellectual, but from the heart. Genuine faith is not intellectual, it's from the heart. Look at what he says in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What James does in this section of verses, he's like, hey, there's this one guy. And he's like, well, you're a works guy. I'm more of a faith guy myself. You do you, man. He's like, you go do your works thing. I'll go do my faith thing. And James is like, that's not how this works in the kingdom. Again, you got to remember, James is writing this to primarily a Jewish audience. And so the context of what he's saying, when they're hearing all of this, would have immediately, in their minds, they would have thought of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Would have given them the commands of the Israelites to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength. And then the following verses and chapters would lay out for Israel who their God is and what it looked like to live as his chosen people. And so the readers would have known that there was one God, and that was the starting point for them. Now, fast forward. There's this like lawyer guy in Matthew chapter 22. He goes to Jesus, and he's trying to find a loophole in the law. And he goes, well, isn't there a loophole like, in all this? Like, what's the greatest command? And Jesus is like, well, love, love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. And everything hangs on those two commands. And then he goes on, and he gives the parable of the, great, of the, um, of the Good Samaritan showing that all these religious people walked right by somebody in need. They weren't loving their neighbor as their self. So our faith will be shown in our works. Now, probably one of my favorite verses in this whole section is verse 19, because I don't know if you picked up on the sass that James is laying down in verse 19. But this is what he says. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and I like it because he's almost like, hey, guess what? I'll even take it up a notch. I'll even one-up you. Not only do they believe, but there's actually a physical response to their belief. That word shudder in the Greek is like the hair sitting on the back of your neck. If you've ever been scared before and you got those chills and you got the hair on the back of your neck, that's what he's getting at. That's what he's wanting us to understand. That's what he's wanting us to feel what he's writing here when he says these words. He's like, hey, you believe in God. That's great. But even the demons believe. 
but at least they have a physical response. It might surprise you to know that demons and the devil are neither atheists or agnostics. The devil and the demons believe in the existence of God. They believe in the deity of God. They believe that this is God's word. They believe that Jesus is coming back one day, but it's not the kind of faith that's impacting their lives. James uses this shocking analogy to say that even though correct belief is important, it's not enough. Because the demons believe, but they shudder. They respect his power and authority. The reality is there are people in the church today that believe the right things about God. You can ask them a series of biblical questions and be able to give you the right answer. One thing I've learned about living out here in the South is that everybody goes to church on Sunday. Everybody knows the right answers, you know? And even if you don't, you always just say Jesus, and chances are you're going to be right. So you might know a lot. You might have an intellectual knowledge. You might know about God, but you don't really know God. You don't, kind of, you don't have the kind of faith that God requires, the relationship that God is looking for. Good example, I believe it's in Acts chapter 8. It's this story of uh, this guy named um, Simon the Sorcerer. And Simon the Sorcerer, he did this, he misled people with his cultic practices for a long time. And one day, Philip showed up and he did miracles by the hand of God. And people saw this and they believed in the one true God that Philip was out there proclaiming and talking about. But Simon, he was a practical man. And so he knew that Jesus was bad for business. So he was like, well, I got to do something about this. And the Bible says that Simon believed and was baptized, but it wasn't a genuine conversion. Because later on, years later, Peter would say to Simon, hey, your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent of your wickedness. So when we put all of this together, it shows us that like the demons, you can believe in the power of God. You can believe that Jesus is the son of God. You can believe that this is his word. You can believe that Jesus is coming back again. And like Simon, you could be baptized and not really know God in a personal way. So now you might be thinking, well, what does it mean to believe? Well, the word believe is made up of two words, be and live. And doesn't that pretty much sum up what James has been saying? That I put my faith in Jesus and now I'm going to live it out. And so now James moves to giving us some examples of people who showed their faith. And this is the third and final point, thought for today, and that is that authentic faith is an acting faith. Authentic faith is an acting faith. Look at what he says in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James gives us some examples of two people, two people with very different stories, two people with very different backgrounds, two people with very different stories. So why does he choose these people? Well, it's because they lived out their faith. You could see their faith lived out. 
And I think he singled them out for a couple of reasons. One, I think because Abraham was a guy and Rahab was a woman, showing us that in Christ there's neither male or female. I think he chose Abraham because he was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile, showing us that there is neither Jew or Gentile in Christ. But I think the biggest reason why he showed us this is because uh, Abraham and Rahab were tested. Their faith was tested before a watching world. And again, it goes back to what James has been saying over and over again for the last several verses, that our actions should line up with what we profess. If we say one thing with our mouth, but our actions are showing something else, then our heart really hasn't changed. The point of Abraham and Rahab is that they obeyed and truly followed God. They didn't just simply, like in verse 15, say, I believe and did nothing. They believed and they showed that they believed. They lived it out. Their obedience was demonstrated by the genuineness of their faith because it was seen in their works. See, the evidence of a changed life will be seen in how you spend your time, how you treat people, how you talk with people. That's the evidence of a transformed life, of a transformed heart. See, Jesus doesn't simply save you from something. He saves you for something. It's not simply, well, you know what? I got fire insurance. I'm not going to go to hell. I'm going to go to the good place. I'm going to go to heaven. Jesus doesn't simply save you from something. He saves you for something. Ironically, Martin Luther put it this way. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. James is addressing something that was happening in the early church. A lot of people were there saying, I believe. I've put my faith in Jesus. But did they really? I mean, anybody could say it. But was there evidence? There was no change being lived through them. I think the reality is the same is true for us today. This is in some ancient text we read and we go, oh, that's nice. That's cool that they struggled with that. This letter that James is writing could be very much written to us in our time in 2023. And so the question that I want us to close with today is, do you have a saving faith? It all goes back to what James was talking about in verse 19, that it's not just an intellectual faith or an emotional faith. Yeah, our faith involves intellect, like we need to know truths about God. There is an emotional response to it, but a faith that saves, a faith that both Paul and James would agree that saves, is a volitional faith. It's not just of the mind, it's not just of the heart, but it's of the will. It's a surrendering of control of your life to him. So have you surrendered your life to him? Do you have the saving faith or are you holding on to some stuff? Are you like, well, God, you could have this over here, but I'm going to hold on to my time. You could have that over there, God, but I'm going to hold on to my money. God, you could have this, you could have that, but God, I'm going to hold on to this stuff over here. I'm not going to give you this stuff. This week, I read about a French acrobat named Blondin. And in the 19th century, he was a very famous acrobat, and he made this announcement that he was going to take a tightrope, and he was going to stretch it from one side of Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet to the other side of Niagara Falls. And he was going to walk on this tightrope uh, with no harness, no ropes, no safety net, just him and his pole to balance himself with. And so thousands of people showed up because they're like, we got to see this stunt. 
And so the day that he was going to do this, he stood at the edge of Niagara Falls right before he would step on that tightrope and he shouted to the crowd below. He said, who here thinks that I can walk from one side of Niagara Falls to the other side without falling off? And the crowd said, we believe, we believe. And so he started his walk across Niagara Falls. It took him 22 minutes as he took one step, one foot in front of the other foot, in front of the other foot. 22 minutes to cross, and he made it safely to the other side. And, and the crowd just, with every step, held their breaths. And once he made it to the other side, they just exploded in celebration. They couldn't believe that Blondin had did this unbelievable feat. But he wasn't satisfied. So he's like, I'm going to do it again. But what he did was he took breakfast out in the middle of the tightrope. Like he gets to the middle of it, and he just starts eating an omelet. And people are amazed. They're like, whoa, this is so cool. Like they had never seen it before. This is amazing. But still not satisfied, after he gets back safely, he grabs his manager. He throws his manager on his back and he starts walking the tightrope with his manager on his back. And the people are like, no way. Like they can't believe what they're seeing. Their minds are just blown, but he's still not satisfied. After he gets safely back, he's like, all right, now I'm going to take this wheelbarrow. And he walks it from one side and then he walks it back again. And the crowd is just cheering. They're applauding. They can't believe everything that he's done. And so then Blondin turns to the crowd and he's like, all right, how many of you here believe that I could do this again? And they shout, we believe, we believe. And he's like, well, I need a volunteer. Who wants to get in this wheelbarrow? And they were silent. Nobody said anything. They had been emotionally moved. They had been stirred. They had seen everything. They're like, we believe. But it was their turn. They were silent. See, here's the point in all of this. We could pick up our Bibles we could read the faith of Moses and go, we believe, we believe. Read the faith of Noah and go, we believe, we believe. We read the faith of Abraham and Rahab and we go, we believe, we believe. We could sit here today and, and see Jesus and say, we believe, we believe, we believe that he died on the cross, that he rose again. We believe that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We could sit there and say, we believe, we believe all day long, but Jesus will say, okay, now it's your turn. Get in. I want to do something good in your time with you. And we're silent. We don't do anything. See, wherever... Blondin stepped with his manager on his back. His manager was surrendered control. Like he had no control where he stepped. When you get in, you give up control. Saving faith means that you've surrendered control of your life to Jesus. So maybe you're here today. And you're like, man, I, I, you realize you don't have the saving faith. Maybe you prayed a prayer once. Maybe you didn't pray a prayer at all. And you realize that the life of Jesus is not pouring out of you. You realize that your faith is not the authentic faith like James is talking about here today. I don't want you to wallow in that. I don't want you to feel the, the weight of that on your shoulders. I want to give you an invitation to receive Jesus, to do something about it, to turn from your sins and to turn to him. That's your greatest need. No amount of works, no amount of money will get you a good property in heaven. There's nothing you can do. It's only through Jesus. So repent, turn around, change directions, and let the love of God embrace you, change you, and change your heart. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible is Ephesians chapter 2. 
the whole chapter is really great because it, it starts off doom and gloom, right? Like we were all sinners. We're all headed for hell. You're like, that's a great way to start it. But then in verse four, it goes, but God, he loved us so much that he sent Jesus. It's really a cool story of the gospel. But really this week I've been praying verses, uh, two, uh, verses eight through 10 over us today. In fact, I want to read what it says. It says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And if you've ever received the gift of grace, you say a good amen right there. Verse nine, not by works so that no one can boast. Basically what Paul is trying to get at here is like, hey, there's nothing you can do. There's no amount of work so that nobody just struts into church going, look at how good I am. Look at how I earned my way into heaven. It's not by works. And then verse 10, he says, for we are God's handiwork. That word handiwork means masterpiece, poem, song. For a lot of us, that's where we stop. We're like, man, this is so great. Like it's by grace I've been saved. There's nothing I could do. And I'm God's masterpiece. And we stop and we just go, that's great. I'm out the door. But Paul didn't stop there. He continues. He says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We've been saved, but God has given us some work to do. See, the challenge for us today is to not be like those people in verse 15. We come to church, we believe, see you later. Hope somebody fixes that. Go with God. They don't just say, hey, I believe and that's it. You don't just kick back and say, well, I'm good to go. Who cares about the rest of the world? Because basically what you're saying is, I don't care who goes to hell. I got my ticket. I'm good to go. We don't just say we believe. We show that we believe. We care for one another. By the way, uh, James, when he's writing this, he's writing this letter, it's primarily with how we deal with one another. Look at how we started. He said, brother and sister in Christ. It's how we interact. It's how we deal with one another inside this room. And so we don't just kick back and say, well, I believe, good luck. But church, let's grow in our faith. Let's put some action to our faith. Put some action in your family. Put some action in your neighborhood. Put some action in your community, where you go to school, where you go to work. Hey, guess what? Put some action inside the walls of this church. Let's serve one another. Let's care for one another. We've got teams that'll help us serve and care for one another. I was thinking this week, even just praying this morning, I was thinking, man, for a lot of us, we came into this place hurting and broken and somebody showed us a seat and we've heard the good news of Jesus and it's changing our lives. I know that that's happening because I've heard the stories. I've heard what you guys have said. And yet, guess what? We need people to help people find seats. We need people to greet people. We need people to be available to pray for one another. What better way to say we believe and show the next generation than to serve in kids ministry? To be like, hey, let me show you my faith. Not just expect some people to handle it for us, but we all do it because we all care for one another. We all want to serve one another. We say we believe there is work that God has prepared for us to do. There are community, there's things that we do out in the community that we've partnered with. Kids Bible Club, partner with that. Those are just some ways that we're just saying, hey, here's some avenues for you to do this, to live this out. I would challenge you today, pray, say, man, I've received Jesus, but maybe I don't have this kind of faith that's spilling out of me. God, what would you have me to do? Who would you have me come in contact with? Who would you want me to speak to, talk to, show that I believe? 
That's the challenge. It's a challenge for every believer in here today. We just don't kick back and say, I'm good. We grow together. We let our faith be shown like Abraham, like Rahab. And we grow in our faith. And let's, church, let's have a faith that pleases God. Amen? Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.